Dear Christian friends, knock it off. It's time that you stop trying to be the perfect, the model, insert whatever it is that you struggle with. The perfect employee, the ideal fairy tale boy or girlfriend, the, the most exceptional spouse ever, the best caregiver, the perfect child, whether an adult child or, or young child, or the perfect parent, the ideal star studded student in the classroom, whatever it might be, knock it off. Knock it off, not because that goal is somehow less than ideal or not noble, but knock it off because we have to confess that oftentimes, while the exterior goal might be a good and noble thing, what is driving us, what leads us to strive toward that, is anything but. The reality, the truth is that as we, we look beneath the exterior, the outside of, of all of those efforts to do good and, and noble things, the reality is that there's really something sinister oftentimes behind it as we look into our own hearts. And we recognize that what might look appealing or impressive on the outside to others, again, is anything but. What's really driving us to be that ideal, that model, that perfect insert, whatever it is for you there? Is it, is it pride that expects or craves some sort of recognition from somebody else? Is it ego that can't stand to be thought of less than somebody else? Is it a craving for control that refuses to relinquish to somebody else what might be an inferior job if they, if they do it? Is it the desire, this lie that you believe that you can somehow please everybody, that you can keep everybody else happy? What is it that's driving you to attain that ideal perfection, that model, insert whatever it is for you? The fact of the matter is that oftentimes it is really quite ugly when we get beneath the surface. And that's why it's time to, to knock it off. The fact of the matter is that, that as we acknowledge that, if we're willing to acknowledge that, we recognize really how dangerous that can be. You see, because the fact of the matter is, we might even deceive ourselves into thinking that, that somebody else is going to buy into that, that outward lie because it looks good, it looks appealing on the outside. But, but I want you to consider for a, for a moment the fact that that's actually worse than just owning up and fessing to your, your failures or your shortcomings. You see, look on the outside, look to the unbeliever, look to the hardened sinner who, who makes no effort to mask or hide his sin. It's blatant, it's gross, it's disgusting, it's whatever you call it, but he or she doesn't try to hide it, doesn't try to make it something it's not. They own up to their unbelief and that's how they live and they're good with it. They don't care how you feel. You and, and me, we on the other hand, we think we're fooling somebody. We pass off all of these good 
outward exterior uh, attempts at striving to be the ideal, the perfect, when in reality, they're self-serving. We're only appealing to, to our own selfish nature in our own hearts more often than not. And the fact of the matter is that if, if we believe that lie, we might run the risk, we might actually think that we can pass it off, that we can fool God, and, and we know that God can't be mocked. So what is going to happen then when we think that through our own efforts at striving to be the, the model, insert blank here, that when we try to present that before God, this impressive resume that we've built up before him, And he shreds it before our very eyes. Because he sees right through it the stench of our sacrifice tainted by self-interest, pride, ego, control, whatever it might be that you struggle with, and not to the pure motives that, that God would have to drive us to be and to live that way. And then what happens when we think that we can somehow grease the skids of grace to to help us slide into heaven, just maybe the the slightest bit, and and maybe even if we believe that lie just a little bit, we're going to be in for a rude awakening when we find ourselves before the entrance into heaven and we see lit up in, in bright letters the words, no vacancy, no room, for those who thought they fooled everybody else during this lifetime by the way that they lived and who they tried to be, when in reality, what was driving them was totally selfish. What a futile waste of time. Why? Because what we're talking about, this kind of of righteous living, is not going to be found if you can just dig in, if you can just look inward. It's not going to be found inside yourself in any way whatsoever. No matter how hard you try, no matter who you listen to, no matter what you read, it's not here. And it never will be. But of course, the good news this morning is that it is possible to have that very righteousness that that we crave. Once we're willing to acknowledge that We can't ever attain it ourselves. In fact, you heard our first lesson. Isaiah spoke of that very thing that that we crave. In the first four verses of Isaiah 42, listen to the words of the Lord through Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Did you hear the word three times repeated in in those verses? The word justice. Well, what, what comes to mind when you think of justice? Justice is a call to do the right thing, isn't it? When we ask for justice, when we demand that justice be served, what we're saying is that it should be acknowledged when somebody does a good thing, when somebody does the right thing, and when they do the wrong thing, that should be punished. That's justice, isn't it? Or we might say rightness. It's, it's simply doing the right thing. 
Another way that, that Isaiah spells that out for us is later on in these same verses, in verse 6, he just uses that term, righteousness. He says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Which maybe the simplest way to understand that just means to be right with God. So Isaiah speaks of, of justice, and he speaks of righteousness, doing the right thing which we've already established we're not able to do because it's tainted by, by our own self-interest and our own selfishness. We need to know who Isaiah is speaking of when he says, here is my servant. Who is my servant? We must know. We have to find out because he is the only hope if we are to find out where and how we are to attain this righteousness that God demands, being right with him. And then we look to the words of our gospel this morning, the words of Matthew, and things start to become clear for us, don't they? As Matthew records it, it for us, John the Baptist was reluctant. He was a little bit confused as to why Jesus would come to him and request to be baptized because John knew, well, baptism is for sinners. Baptism is to wash away sin, and, and you have none. Why would you come to be baptized? And Jesus gives him the very answer. In verse 15, he says, Jesus replied, Let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. To do the right thing. See, God's plan for building up his church, the body of believers, his plan for making disciples, baptism is a key component to that, isn't it? And if it is therefore a key component for how Christ is going to build His church, how God is going to bring people into His church and sustain us and strengthen us through this hope and promise of baptism, then it's a non-negotiable that our Savior, the substitute, the one who was going to be everything that we couldn't be, also had to be baptized so that He could fulfill what we could not. Righteousness. And as if, as if God just kind of delights in, in dropping little hints and little clues, sometimes so many that it, it's just so obvious to us how to connect to the dots, notice what Matthew records for us happening after that. In verse 17, at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now you consider that fulfilling righteousness, and you consider these words, does, does it feel a little bit like deja vu to you? This idea of righteousness and, and, and the, a voice speaking favor, speaking of being pleased with the Son. If it sounds like deja vu, it's because you already heard it through the prophet Isaiah. Can you connect the dots? Has God made it clear to us enough through the Holy Spirit who he was speaking of when referencing my servant here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, with whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him just as we witnessed the visible manifestation of the spirit at Jesus' baptism. You can connect the dots. You can conclude that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, is our righteousness. 
He alone is, is the one that can possibly fulfill and be referenced through these words of Isaiah. My servant is my Savior and your Savior and the righteous one. Now, now, why would God be able to say that He is pleased in the Son? Well, you know, of course, that, that Jesus was perfect, that He was holy, that He was righteous. But, but here's the thing. We have to really fully understand the depth of His righteousness uh, compared to where ours is so lacking. See, righteousness is not just doing the right thing at all times. Righteousness is doing the right thing at all times for the right reason. And because of our old Adam, this side of heaven, we will never do everything for the right reason. Jesus, on the other hand, fulfilled all righteousness, was right all the time because what drove him was not an ego, it was not pride that needed the acceptance and the approval of other people. And we see through the Gospels that he certainly didn't receive that, did he? It wasn't Jesus who needed to be in control because he just didn't trust that the Father could handle things without him or apart from him. It wasn't Jesus' insecurity needing to measure up to somebody else. What drove Jesus all the time was the love that was locked in his heart for the Father a perfect love, a selfless love, what drove him at all times in every word, every thought, every action that he righteously carried out on our behalf was not just a concern for doing the right thing, but because the right heart, a holy heart, desired to please the Father. And here's the the most beautiful thing of, of all. Jesus didn't fulfill all of that righteousness. He didn't do all of the right things for the right reason just so that you could stand in awe of Him. Just so that you could stand back and be impressed. He did it for another reason. Not to impress, but rather to dress you with His righteousness. To clothe you so that you could be adorned with His perfect record of always doing the right thing for all of the right reasons on your behalf. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is Paul's way of saying that in your baptism through faith that God, that the Holy Spirit worked in you in baptism, you have been dressed, adorned with Christ's righteousness. You are right with God. Not because you've done the right thing. Because you haven't. Not because you've done the right or wrong thing for the right reasons. Because you haven't. You're righteous because Christ was righteous for you. And God in his undeserved, unending, incomprehensible love says, my righteousness is my gift to you. Through faith. So knock it off. Stop trying to be what you can never be on your own. Stop trying to, to strive for some model of perfection or some ideal that is unattainable because it will always be tainted by your sinful self-interest. And simply rest in Christ's righteousness. So I'm convinced that that is, that is far too often overlooked 
by us in our Christian faith. We have tunnel vision that looks to the cross, and, and I don't say that without apology or to minimize the cross in any way, but, but rather when we only focus on the cross, we really only get a fraction of who Christ was on our behalf. He is also your righteousness and my righteousness. And he was that for us so that even though we are in faith, even though we are in Christ, that doesn't mean that we are somehow back under the burden of having to live the right way for him. It's not a burden at all. It's a joy and it's freedom because you don't have to. You already are. Whatever it is that you insert in that blank, the, the perfect, the ideal girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, employee, son, child, daughter, student, friend, through Christ's righteousness, you are already that. God views you that way. And what a relief, what freedom is that to have that burden lifted up. That this isn't just a matter of Christ died for my sins, but now I must show how worthy I am of that through my, through my living to make sure that heaven is my home. Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life was lived for you, for your benefit, so you could truly experience the awe and the freedom of living in Christ so that it would make sense to you and you could say along with the psalmist through the eyes of faith, as is recorded for us in Psalm 71. Verse 2, the psalmist says, Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Rest in Christ's righteousness and not your own. Knock it off. Let his righteousness be enough and live in the joy and freedom that Christ freely gives to you through faith. Amen.